Welcome to the Eucharist Podcast with Wyoming Catholic College, responding to the call for Eucharistic renewal by sharing wisdom in God's country. I'm Jeremy Holmes, Academic Dean at Wyoming Catholic College. And I'm Kyle Washett, its President, and welcome to this episode. In the providence of God and based on the various timings of the academic calendar, Jeremy and I have ended up releasing the, these podcasts on the Eucharist during the liturgical season of Advent, or for Byzantines, the time of Philip fast. And the, the word Advent used in the West to describe this season, of course, simply comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means a coming. So in, in one way or another, we're in the season of the coming of the Lord. And St. Bernard of Clairvaux says in one of his homilies that there are, in fact, three comings of the Lord. And which I remember the first time I read that, that took me off guard because I was accustomed to thinking of the second coming, meaning the end of time. And I was like, wait a minute, there's three? What, what, what's going on? And, but once I read Bernard's trio of comings and, and paid attention to the liturgies, I realized in the Mass uh, of the West, you do see all three comings that Bernard is describing. Here's what they are. The first is the coming of Christ in the flesh as an infant at Christmas time. We're preparing for that, right? We're awaiting the arrival of the infant Christ, um, which, of course, happened long ago, but we're remembering that moment. We're sort of mentally back in the Old Testament times, getting ready for the arrival of the Messiah in the, the, the mystery of the birth of Christ. But then second, Christ comes invisibly to, to each of us, right? So in, when he, in, in the Gospel of John, in his Last Supper discourse, uh, and when the, the disciples are distraught because he's talking about going away and going to the Father, he reassures them, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Right? And, and during the Advent season, we also prepare for Christ's invisible coming to us when he won't leave us alone. And then, of course, the third is Christ's coming again in the flesh in glory at the end of time. Right? So Bernard says that he came once in humility and suffering. Right? He comes again invisibly uh, and, and with sweetness, and he'll come a, a third time in, in glory and majesty. Right, so these are the three comings. So the time of Advent is a time of getting ready for the the, the birth of Christ. It's a time of getting of preparing ourselves for Christ to enter into us. And really, uh, it is traditionally a time of waiting for the end of the world. Right. And, and so then, as in the context of this podcast, as we're talking about the mystery of transubstantiation, we've hit on a way a number of ways in which that mystery ties into the theme of the Latin tradition of Advent. Well, it may be most evidently we've talked about Christ coming spiritually into us in communion, right? This is this is something we have hit uh, again and again. Right, that, that in fact the entire mystery of transubstantiation is for that kind of spiritual intimacy, his coming into our hearts in this profound way. But we've also talked about how the mystery of transubstantiation is a kind of already but not yet, an anticipation of the fullness of the glorified Christ coming at the end of time and raising our bodies to be with him in heavenly glory. And this is where we reference the, the wonderful 
song, let all mortal flesh be silent, right? Because the, 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 uh, the, the Lord is descending, you know, bringing with him a blessing and uh, implicitly also judgment, right? And so we, st- we stand with fear and trembling. We talked about how that is in the, the, these are in the texts of the mass and of the liturgy. And so uh, to use Bernard's numbering, Cummings number two and three seem squarely tied into the Eucharist. Uh, but as we find ourselves um, working on this podcast during the Advent season, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what about coming number one? Is the Eucharist in any way a um, a birth of Christ nativity mystery? Right at first, uh, it could be hard to see a connection. Yes. In fact, all of our language about the mystery of the Eucharist tends to focus on the Paschal mystery, what happens at the end of our Lord's earthly life and his entrance into heavenly glory. Well, we're, after all, we're offering the sacrifice of the Mass, which is you know tied into... Um, and to Good Friday, and we've emphasized in this podcast that it's the fact that it's the risen Lord present in the Eucharist. There we have Easter. So it would seem that, if anything, the Eucharist is solidly a Paschal Triduum sacrifice. What would it have to do with the Advent season as preparing for the birth of Christ? Well, and in fact, here I think the Eastern tradition is a really helpful guide. Uh, we had talked about, uh, when we were talking about Eucharistic miracles, how the Russian church has this prescription about what happens if during consecration the Eucharist changes into either flesh or blood or, it says, a baby. A baby, an infant, right? right. And so, so, it, it, um, I'm trying to imagine myself as either the priest or the faithful in this moment when suddenly there is an infant on the altar and even as a longtime Catholic, I'm having trouble processing this image. Right. This, this is apparently a staple of the Eucharistic miracles as they took place in Russia. Uh, holy men of Russia attest to this happening as they're celebrating the divine liturgy and the, a child appearing. And this seems even there's some texts that hint about this happening in the early church, some association of the Eucharistic transfiguration with the appearance of a child. In fact, when we're reading about some of the calumnies made about the early Christians to the Romans about how terrible the sect is, one of the descriptions is, and they take this child and they kill it and they eat it. So there was already in the language of the early church, distorted as it gets reported up by Roman authorities, some account of the Eucharistic consecration being an event where the child Christ becomes present. This is just kind of mind-blowing, right? Not, not sort of what would be common to our piety instinctually, perhaps, certainly not today. And yet, as I think about that, there seems something really important about the link between what happens in the tomb of Beth in the tomb of Bethlehem Freudian slip in the cave of Bethlehem no that's interesting because the uh, the eastern icon of the nativity distinctly shows the the cave as a tomb so i i, I know that this connection is forged in your mind that it just slips out <laughs> all right so there's this this in fact a profound connection between the cave of bethlehem and jesus being wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger for animals to eat and jesus being wrapped in a winding sheet and laid in a grave in anticipation of the eucharistic consecration there's in a deep link there 
in Christian pie in Eastern piety, as we talked about, even in the icons, somehow the Nativity of Christ is a Paschal event. And you know, it's just it's a it's a detail that can go by us because we're so accustomed to it in the songs of the season and in the Christmas cards that we receive and open that, of course, Christ was laid in a manger. And uh, most of us, I think, if, you know, asked on a trivia show, you know, what is a manger? We would be able to answer, oh, yes, of course, a manger is something that animals eat from. And then we would probably take the fact that Christ is laid in a manger as just a sign of the poverty of the Holy Family. You can't afford a real bed. So you just make do with with whatever's to hand, and here's and and what's to hand is a feeding trough, so the baby ends up there, and 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 that's true in part. I think of the poignancy of the Christmas season is, um, is that in that Christ joins the poorest of the poor in his condition, but but nothing is accidental with God, and we have to stop and say, wait a minute, it's a feeding trough. This is where, where, where animals come to eat. Christ has placed himself in, like, it's as, it's, it's as though they laid, you know, had, if, what if they had laid the infant Christ on a serving dish, right? On, like, on a platter for, for a banquet, right? I think maybe the, the, the point would, would hit us right away. But they, they put him in a, a feeding trough, and you say, wait a minute, what's the connection here to to the passion and death of our Lord and to the Eucharist. Um, I mean, another thing that can that I think many of us can recite uh, as a kind of fact that maybe have not uh, absorbed deeply enough is that the manger where Christ is laid and, and the place where he is born, it, it, this is Bethlehem. That's Bethlehem, and, and many of us know this is Hebrew for the house of bread. So we have Christ the infant in a place where you eat things, uh, and the place is named as the house of bread. It starts to look like the Christmas mystery is connected to the Eucharist. And we add some extra things about this. We, we've noted, again, in our conversation about the, the songs in the liturgy, the Sanctus, the angelic hymns that we're singing. Well, angelic hymns accompany... The birth of Christ. These angels appear, they start singing, it moves the shepherds to come worship. And the shepherds, again, are associated with lambs, which is going to be associated especially with the lambs for sacrifice. That's how you ate a lamb in Jerusalem, is you would buy a lamb and you would take it and you'd present so, it and sacrifice to the temple. Right. And I mean, here's another thing we can ask ourselves, right? Of all the people in the world, uh, why is it, you know, and even of all the poor people in the world, why is it particularly shepherds that are called first to see the newborn king? Um, now, there are many connections going on at once, right? As I mentioned, they are the poor and, and, and therefore vividly represent those whom Christ has come to save. They are shepherds, and Christ, the newborn king, will be the shepherd of all men, right? These are all connections. But we shouldn't blow by the fact that these are shepherds looking at the Lamb of God, Right? The, the lamb who will be sacrificed. So so now what do we have? We've said, well, actually in the Christmas story, there's angelic songs. Uh, the angelic song, in, I just can't help, I'm sorry, to, but the angelic song they hear, Glory to God on the Highest, we've adopted it both east and west um, 
in, in the east as the conclusion of matins before right before divine liturgy begins in the west in the beginning of the mass we have a we have chosen to have this the very song the shepherds heard ring in our ears as we head toward the eucharist right so okay clearly then this notion of on the eucharistic altar an infant appearing in a certain miraculous way has deep roots both in the scripture story itself and in the practice of the liturgy in east and west that deep in the psyche of the christian there's an association between the eucharist and the nativity of our lord ask what 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 do we do with that how do we think of the eucharist then as preparing us for encounter with the nativity of our lord it seems to me that you know, when when I think of say the, the Paschal Triduum in comparison to Christmas, you know, just to, as I experience them, a uh, something that stands out to me at first as a contrast is that, well, the Paschal Triduum is the adult sort of manly Christ suffering terrible things, and it feels like a very stern season, which ends with a kind of, um, uh, um exalted joy but the christmas season is more tender it focuses in on the littleness um the the church fathers love to rotate around you know things like the one whom the heavens and the earth cannot encompass is contained in the manger you know or or is held in the virgin's arms right they they, they love to circle around the the mind-boggling littleness of God at Christmas, and you know, and at, at, in the the tradition of the carols, right, and and the songs we have, for example, the um, in the bleak midwinter kind of emphasis, where we think about the 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 poverty and the smallness of of, of Christ. But what begins to 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 become clear to me as as we reflect together today is that that is also a focus on the vulnerability the, uh, of the infant Christ, the helplessness of the infant Christ, the one whom Herod could kill, right? Um, you know, the Herod raging in his mad fury, as the song says, comes to kill all the infants. And, um, and what happened to those infants could, could very well happen to this little baby who is God. And that begins to highlight the fact that he came to be sacrificed. He's born to be vulnerable, right? And the vulnerability we see in the baby is going to be the vulnerability that allows him to die for us, right? The um, the step from you know, it may be that we're too we're too um, calloused toward men, and we don't see how vulnerable men are. And we don't appreciate that God can't die, and he had to become a man for us so he could die. But when God shows himself to us in the infant stage, we think, be careful. Hold him carefully. You know, don't, don't, oh, watch, watch his head, watch his head. Right, we're, we're acutely aware of how vulnerable God is. Um, and this is, right, this is right where Matthew chooses to take us to the passion, right? When Christ is born, there is in Jerusalem an assembly of the of the high priests, you know, the chief priests and the Pharisees to deliberate about what to do. And the resulting decision coming from the king is that uh, this new Messiah needs to die. Now, 
there's only one other time in, in, in the gospel where the chief priests and the Pharisees, who hate each other, by the way, gather together. And that's when the decision is going to be made to crucify Christ. Matthew is signaling to us that we need to see the infant Christ in the shadow of the cross for which he came. And there it seems to me there's something profound for our own love of our Eucharistic Lord that we need to, as you already suggested, we need to respond to the Eucharist with the love and tenderness that we would respond to a baby. That just as the the Lord in heaven retains in him the mark of his passion, he sort of holds the for all eternity his offering of himself on the cross and in the tomb to the Father, even in his resurrected state, he also retains the tininess, the sweetness, the innocence and lovability of himself as the child laid in the cave in Bethlehem. Isn't it the case that that most of us, as we grow up, we lose a certain tenderness? Um, you know, we, we like to say, you know, because of, you know, life is hard or so on, right? But there's a certain sweetness, a certain innocence, a certain purity that we lose. Really finding through weakness, we're not alive enough, right? Uh, right? G.K. Chesterton, you know, watching the sun come up every day, right? He says, you know, the, the stupid materialists, they think that this is a sign of death, right? Because, uh, you know, it's just repetitive action. And, and, and surely, you know, that means it's just a machine. And he says, but children love repetitive action. They, they'll wear us out asking to, to do the same thing again and again. And every time the sun rises, it's like God, who is not only the ancient of days, but eternally young, says, do it again, right? And Christ, the man, retains the heart of the child and this, the purity of the child in a way that, that that's very hard for us to understand. And, and so when, when we respond to him, um, we, we need to not only kick in the instinctive response we would have to the grandeur of a of a full-grown king, we we need to add to that and layer into that our Christmas response. Yes, and so that we were talking about how the mystery of transubstantiation, in a sense, is a mystery for little children. The mystery of the joy of everything. Can, there's blue and there's things, and the blue can be in things. And that realization of this key to reality that's in childlike minds that explode forth as the key to understanding the Eucharist. There's the thing that appears, the spread, these accidents of bread, and the thing that is real, Christ, and the delight that we should take in this mystery of transubstantiation. Here we're hearing that we should also take the delight that a child takes in a baby. I bring, when we bring a newborn baby home and the way my little children respond, the toddlers respond to seeing that littleness, that innocence, that vulnerability, that delight is there. And as a grown-up, you know, oh, there's so many risks, there's so much worry, there's so much anxiety, even as you're holding a little baby, that maybe both of those are appropriate responses as we prepare to celebrate the Eucharist with our Lord on Christmas. The awareness of the shadow of the cross that Matthew puts in, but also that childlike delight in the infant Christ, the lovability of Christ who comes not just to be sacrificed, but to rejoice and let us hug him and embrace him and be in communion with him. And maybe that's in a special way why 
even in the Roman tradition, you celebrate extra masses on Christmas Day. There's Christmas Eve Mass, there's Midnight Mass, there's Mass at dawn, and there's Mass during the day. That you want to keep going back again and again to the manger of the altar to delight in the infant sacrificed and risen Lord. Thank you for listening to the Eucharistic Podcast at Wyoming Catholic College. To learn more about Wyoming Catholic College, visit wyomingcatholic.edu.